0: Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is um, Season 9, Episode 2, and it's so fun to be into the second uh, episode of uh, Season 9 because this is Hanukkah week, and yesterday we had a wonderful conversation between Faith Kramer of 52 Shabbats and then Beth Lee of the Essential Jewish Baking Book, and I love getting a chance to talk to both of them. Uh, If you don't know, I had them uh, at my library talking about the Festival of Hanukkah and the foods of Hanukkah, and then we also used the same um, script for um, the podcast episode yesterday as well. So I had the pleasure of getting to talk to them twice in one week, which was really wonderful. I just love them both. They're so uh, engaging. Uh, Beth is really fun and just a font of information and just so charming. It's great to get a chance to talk to her. Um, I just love having an excuse to have people back on the program, and having them both talking together was just a treasure, and it really made my uh, week. Um, I also love getting the chance to um, have Hanukkah week um, and get to have some of my guests' uh, episodes rebroadcasted like I'm doing with this one. I'm gonna take you right to my conversation with Beth Lee of the website Oh My God Yummy, or OMG Yummy, and The Essential Jewish Baking Book. Uh, You can get that at all better bookstores, but we also have a link to the uh, cookbook and her website in the bio, check that out. Onward to the episode. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I'm honored to have Beth A. Lee on my podcast to talk about her brand new cookbook, The Essential Jewish Baking Cookbook, 50 traditional recipes for every occasion. Beth, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Dean. I'm so excited to be here chatting with you.
0: Yeah, I've been really looking forward to it. And I've been looking over the cookbook and making me very hungry. I've been looking over it with my wife and we've been planning out all the things I want to bake in the future with it. So it's going to be kind of fun.
1: Great. Well, let me know what you decide to start with. And uh, I love seeing what everybody's cooking and uh, baking and uh, their twists on it or just how it's just really exciting to see it all come see it see it coming to life and people eating it in their kitchens.
0: Well um I've I mean I, I like I'm on a rye bread kick right now so there'll be a lot of rye bread in my future from this book but um I really like a lot of the cookies and I think a lot of the some of the recipes like I wonder if I'm pronouncing this right hamantaschen
1: Hamantaschen Hamantaschen mm-hmm. yeah
0: well that's a long time lifelong favorite of mine so those will be first I'm sure but also, I want to try the rugelach.
1: That's that's a good one. That's yeah. a, that's the recipe that we've been making uh, in our family for a really long time. Uh, it started out uh, years and years ago, uh, like so old that I can't, I mean, it was in a magazine and I'm afraid to say when because it really dates me, but it was a recipe we had found in food and wine like a million years ago, and then just have kind of made it into our family recipe over the years. But, uh, it's, it's a really good one that, that I, uh, we were asked to bring that really wherever we go. We, we eat it for Hanukkah, even though that's not really traditional, it's just Mm -hmm. traditional for us. Uh, but there's something about the combination of the chocolate and the apricot and the cream cheese and, um, butter in the dough and sour cream you just kind of can't go wrong with it
0: i'm salivating just thinking about it that's all my favorites yeah. right there so so tell us about yourself uh, for those who are not familiar with you um, or your website tell us about yourself and how you came to food writing
1: sure so uh i uh, not not a typical path uh i uh kind of call myself a recovering uh, Silicon Valley marketing executive um, as so many people end up being here, the recovering part. Uh, But I love to uh, savory cook, especially uh, really from kind of from college on. Um, And I had this long career in doing, as I say, Silicon Valley stuff, but I always had this sort of yen for cooking, I just perhaps realized late just how much of a yen for cooking I had. Um, and then in 2010, I, I had to take a little break from my uh, regular work to deal with, um, you know, managing the household and the kids and stuff. And I was really antsy and our family loves um Traveling when and when we traveled, we would always travel and kind of plan our food, and then the the sort of the sightseeing was in between. And I was just kind of seeing a pattern there. And uh, at one uh, two thousand and ten, my family said, "You know, why don't you just start writing about food? You know, just like start a blog. Like, why not?" It was sort of on a whim, uh, without all the planning and everything that I had to do for. You know, my clients and everything in marketing and i started writing my food blog oh my god yummy omg yummy.com and it really just has gone on from there i realized you know that really food everything about food writing about it eating it creating recipes taking photos of it i realized that it's my passion and uh, I just decided to keep moving forward uh, with it. And I will tell you, I think you'll appreciate this. In 2010, the year I started my blog, I went to a blogging conference in San Francisco. I think it was Blogger Food. And I met Dory Greenspan. I met a lot of people who I'm still friends with. It wasn't just her, but I remembered meeting her and I knew she was, you know, already really well known in the food writing and cookbook writing field and, she was so wonderful, genuine yes. and inspiring when I met her uh, that I just thought, wow, like if this is what the world of food professionals is like, this is the place for me. I mean, she just and, and a lot of other people I met at that conference, I'm still in you know uh, contact with and working with or friends with uh it was very inspiring and i just decided to keep moving forward with it uh wasn't as i say there wasn't really the plan but i just realized it was my passion and i was going to keep keep marching forward
0: dory is probably one of the nicest people on the entire earth i swear to god
1: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i i'm very excited uh uh anytime that i converse with her i just um I'm just always, uh, I love her writing and I love, I love the way she connects with people and, um, no matter how, you know, well-known or widespread her work is, she really connects with people at the same level that she always has. And it's, it's just really inspiring.
0: When I interviewed her a few weeks ago, I think she asked me more questions than I asked her.
1: (laughs) I actually do. I want to know. I was thinking about that before I call. I do want to know more about you. And I love the name of your podcast, The Well-Seasoned Librarian. So I do want to know more about that. Um, And it's true. When you uh, talk with her, she's just really, I feel like she um, sincerely wants to know about you and connect together, not just have the conversation and move on to the next thing.
0: I know. I mean, I, I was going to almost suggest to her that she have her own podcast because she's really good at it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, she's doing that newsletter, which is really, and, and I was just like gobsmacked when she included my book in her newsletter um, as one of her for, for A through L. She did two newsletters, A through L and then M through Z of the books that she's, you know, looking at right now, reading right now, cooking from right now. And I just was so thrilled uh, to be in that list, I was that was just amazing.
0: Well, when um, we talk
1: about like coming full circle with my my foray into the food world. i I felt just so just I hate you, I say I think it's overused, but honored and just thrilled, just completely thrilled that she she did that.
0: Well, your um website, OMG yummy, is no small potatoes. It's I think that one of the sle- sleekest most well-produced websites I've seen on food writing around. And I think it's kind of one to hold up to standard for, for other, you know, people, if you wanted to make your own website and blog, I think that would be the one to look at, to kind of well, take on note.
1: Th- thank you so much, Dean. I mean, I really, that's my, you know, the cookbook has been wonderful and it was definitely a, uh, you know, a dream and a um, goal for me. I, I knew that I wanted to be able to start, um, you know, putting my, my perspective and my food into um, physical cookbooks because no matter how advanced the online world gets, people still love having that, um, you know, a, a physical cookbook in their hands or reading them like stories. But the blog is really what got me, you know, launched into the food world and has forced me to really, I sometimes say, get an MBA in uh, social media uh, because, or at least another degree, because it just forces you to stay extremely current with what's going on. And it seriously changes all the time, but I've become an SEO expert. I just completely redesigned the blog. Um, Was it early 2020? I think maybe right around when all the craziness um, started with lockdown and pandemic, but I was um, just fin- did a whole entire redesign to focus on um, uh, not only the look of it—a new, you know, new logo and all of that—but also really what allows people to find your blog these days. You have to learn search search engine optimization, what they call SEO, and so I've had to learn that. Um, luckily I'm in a fantastic mastermind group um, that helps me. We all help each other uh, stay current, but, but thank you for noticing. And uh, I do work really hard on, I, my, I mean, if you look back at early posts, you'll see my photography was sort of horrendous at the beginning and slowly, but surely I'm trying to get rid of all that. But the more current work is, I mean, I've learned that I love, love, I love photography. Yeah, you know, I love to be in front of the camera too. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to do more and more video uh, either for myself or with brands, but uh, I learned that I love to be behind the camera and, ta- and do, you know, take photos of food. And I didn't, it's one thing, by the way, I loved about this change in career for me is in my previous career, I hired creative people. And I managed big projects and product launches and all those things. But I didn't think of myself as a creative person. I thought of myself as the person who's really organized and does project management. And what this field has taught me is that I'm a creative person. I'm a writer, I'm a photographer, I'm a recipe creator. And it's been really exciting to me to like gain the confidence and to do that. And I realized how important like, it would have really been sad if I went through my whole life and didn't think of myself as a creative, but only someone who hired creatives. Uh, I realized I'm a creative person, too. So.
0: I'm, sur- I'm surprised you say that because um, you really are, you're really good at photography. And I don't know about, I didn't really actually check to see who did the book's work. But I was talking to uh, Rose levy uh yesterday about it, and um, your cookbook. And she said, your design for the cover, everything was just really amazing. And she was talking about how good it was. And I was noticing as well, how great your photography is for your social media work. Um, It's just really excellent.
1: Thank you. Well, the photography for the book was done by Annie Martin. I wanna give her a huge shout out. Uh, That was the choice um, from the publisher, uh, Rockridge Press. And she did just, uh, Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful work. I uh, had so wished there were way more for even way more photographs because she just did a fantastic job. Uh, I sent them, you know, little snapshots that I took all the way through my recipe development, uh, so they would know this is what it's supposed to look like, but they baked it they photographed it and wow what a beautiful job they did and and to your point uh dean it's really interesting because uh i photograph a lot there's a lot of different food on my blog as i'm sure you noticed i i love middle eastern ingredients and cuisines i love a lot of fresh produce and fresh fruits and very eclectic all kinds of food there's hawaiian influence food so I don't only photograph baked goods but when you start thinking about photographing baked goods you realize how much brown there is yes yes absolutely it, it, it takes a lot of skill to really make the picture work and be exciting uh and I've you know but but over the years I mean, I'm so impressed with what Annie did for the book and people love the cover, the cover design also by the designers at Rockridge Press, just that really the swath of blue. And then that, you know, that babka right there, people are really loving the cover design. Um, And, you know, I'm just, I'm thrilled with how it came out. And on my blog, I mean, I'm, yeah, I look back at my original work uh, from 2010, maybe 2010, 2013, when I was just playing around and didn't really know what great food photography was, um, kept going to, you know, uh, session after session to learn. And, and now, you know, I feel like, um, you know, I'm a food photographer. I can say that about myself with confidence.
0: Yes, very much. I totally agree.
1: Thanks for noticing
0: Now, I want to ask you, um, I was doing some research on you for the interview, and I saw something that you were mentioned in a 2013 article, The Popularity of Jerusalem by Yotam Ottolenghi and Sami Tamimi. How did this come about?
1: Sure. So, uh, that's a really proud and exciting, um, time in, um, my last, uh, I guess it's almost 11 years in the food world. So a good friend of mine, uh, who I've actually was my first friend when I moved to California, uh, Serene Wallace, um, I've known her since sixth grade. She was actually in the food business long before I was, she was, um, uh, uh, you know, a newspaper writer, she had a food columnist called, she had a food column called Fringe Food along with, or Food on the Fringe. She used to write about ingredients that, you know, were maybe people didn't know about. She would, you know, teach you all about the ingredient and then give you a recipe. So, you know, you could figure, you could, you know, practice using it. Um, anyhow, we were very excited when we saw that the Jerusalem Cookbook by Oda and Tamimi came out, and I guess it was the beginning of 2013 or late 2012. Um, we we saw we kind of had a quick conversation on Twitter, um, and just to come back to Dory Greenspan a little bit, she used she had has had groups who cooked through her cookbooks like French Fridays with Dory. And actually you'll find a bunch of posts on my blog because I was part of that group. And um, it's such a wonderful thing that, and she was so supportive of it, Um, but it was so wonderful to cook through a cookbook with all these other people and talk about what you did with it, with the recipe, ask questions so this friend of mine serene and i decided we were so excited about the jerusalem cookbook coming out that we were going to start our own kind of group um and called tasting jerusalem and it's uh uh, we still have a um, a group on a very active group on facebook these days but we it all started on twitter we're like should we should we do something like this? Is exciting. The ingredients are exciting. We both love, you know, those Middle Eastern ingredients from all different cuisines. Should we do this? And we just decided, you know, we were going to give it a go. And um, we launched it by doing this Skype cook together with each other because she's in Southern California. Got covered in the newspaper down there got covered in a couple other places. Alex Wall from the J, um, uh, Jewish News of Northern California wrote a story about it. And somehow um, it got, I forget exactly how, the New York Times heard about it. They were doing a whole huge, um, uh, Julia Moskin was doing a big spread in her column about one of the recipes and about the book. And they called us, the New York Times called Serena and I and said, we want to talk about your group. Everybody's so excited about this cookbook. You started this virtual group. Um, can we write about it? And can can we come to your kitchen and take photographs of you making food from the book? <laughs> you know, it, like, of course, we said yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and uh, I was the one that came to my kitchen. And um, so, yeah, I'll forever be in that big spread about the you know, the launch of the Jerusalem cookbook and all the crazy, the Otolenghi effect, as people say. I mean, look what's happened to him since then. And Sammy Tamimi. if you're not familiar with the book he came out with, I think last year called Falliston, which is about Palestinian cooking. And he came out with that with Tara Wigley Amazing recipes, amazing book. And, and I, you know, I don't need to say more about Obalangi. I've met um, Yotam uh, at, at Omnivore Books in San Francisco and a couple other times. And he's, you know, was very appreciative of all the everything we've done with teaching people about the ingredients uh, in the book. And that's, by the way, how we focused our group was on the ingredients because people will be like, well, what's suma? What's Zotar? How do I find it? So we would have an ingredient of the month. And then we talk about all the recipes in the book that use that ingredient. And we've kind of keep with that a little bit in one of a couple of his recent books, he's used an ingredient called Rose Harissa. And people actually uh, complained a little bit in a fun way. Like, what the hell is that? Where do I find it? How do I get it? Uh, so um you know, I've, I have a post on my blog, Serena and I came up with an, a recipe for Rose Harissa that you can make it yourself because it's hard to find. And then I also linked to a, the very few places that you can actually find the ingredients. So uh, we laughed about that. The last time I saw him in person, we, we joked about that a little bit, but um, that's how that came about. It was sort of, um, it, it, it just sort of happened in the in the groundswell of all the excitement for the cookbook and it was very exciting time and it was very exciting to have a news New York Times uh, photographer in my kitchen I'll never forget that
0: now was the essential Jewish baking cookbook a long time in coming or did you just one day think you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna write this
1: cookbook how did it come about uh great question so it came about really quickly uh, I had been thinking and have been playing around with several different ideas for cookbooks. Uh, and, and going in the direction of doing something Jewish is a, is a pretty obvious fit. Um, but as you may have noticed on my blog, I write about a lot more than just Jewish baking and cooking. Right. Uh, so I could go a lot of directions with a cookbook. But I was actually approached by the publisher uh, last December uh, so uh, as, as Alex Wall said in her article about me, was, was it a COVID project? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it, it kind of was because they approached me last December. Uh, I agreed to do the project with them in early January. I started in mid-January and I turned in the, um, the manuscript uh, in like late April I mean, late March, early April, and then we edited. Um, so it was a ve- really fast project. Um, but when they brought it to me and said, do you want to do this? I, I you know, I, I thought about it really hard and, and did a lot of due diligence and, and thinking, but it honestly was a perfect fit for me. Like I, I it was just such a good fit for me to, uh, it's so important to me personally uh, to pass on, Uh, the the like the the culture and the and the food of my, my you know my family also my husband's family he was not raised Jewish he was raised in in the United States but his parents are from Hawaii and his grandparents were from Korea so that's enough that's where some of that Hawaiian and Korean food you might see on my blog comes from but it's really important to me to pass on those traditions, since I have a multicultural family. So the idea of doing essential Jewish baking um, where I can really honor the bakers of the past. Uh, and there's a friend of mine on, on um, Instagram who said this so nicely that my book honors the bakers of the past, but welcomes the new bakers. and. Uh, and I see it happening. Um, I see people who are just new to baking who are diving in and having success. So it's it just seems so right for me to be able to put my mark on a book that's gonna hopefully live and help people pass on their own traditions. Um, and it was so great because I'm of Ashkenazic descent. So right. my uh, lineage is from Eastern Europe, but there are Jews from all over the world. The diaspora is wide. Um, We covered the Sephardic, um, uh, Sephardic baking and also some Mizrahi baking, Sephardic being primarily from like the Greece and Spain region, although it's a little more complicated than that. And then Mizrahi, meaning the Jews of like Middle Eastern, uh, Arabic descent, maybe some Asian descent. There's also crossover, but we really tried to cover a broad base uh, and Anyhow, it it just felt like a good fit to me. And um, timing was good. We were still all home in our houses and um, basically just dropped everything and dove into it. And I'm so happy I did. Did
0: you have any fears when you're writing it that somebody might contest some of the recipes is not authentic enough or not how my grandmother did it?
1: Uh, Well, (laughs) you know, that's that's a good question um you know uh i didn't i didn't really have fears that people would you know contest it uh i i had a lot of trepidation about how i was going to get smart enough and knowledgeable enough to represent uh recipes that maybe i didn't grow up with and do a good job of it so Maybe, maybe I wasn't afraid, but it really it was really important to me that I um, did the leg, excuse me, I did the leg work to do it properly. So for example, I didn't grow up eating Sephardic baked goods like the Barrecas or the biscochos, Um, So or there's a, some rolls in there called rascus but I happen to know people who did grow up and have family still alive that bake all those things. So I spent quite a bit of time one-on-one with people. I mean, I have text conversations like when I was developing the Roskus, literally texting with my friends who do know how to make those. Um, Then they were one of my recipe testers. I also went into Facebook groups, uh, both broadly like Jewish cooking that cover all different kinds, but also specifically um, Sephardic um, groups like Bendichas Manos, and uh, I think there's another one, Sephardic SEC Spice or something. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but I spent a lot of time in those groups saying what what is essential Jewish baking to you? Plus, I'm I'm also fairly well schooled in Middle Eastern cuisines and ingredients. So I had some little bit of comfort with some of the more Mizrahi based, the pita bread, but I do a lot of learning. So I did, I did the research. I had a lot of cookbooks, a lot of, um, you know, live resource people, a lot of research on, on Facebook and really on Facebook groups. And, you know, and then I would do, you know, I, I would do spreadsheets with different recipes in them and study like, what it, you know, and watch YouTube videos. There's one recipe in there, um, Malawach, which is a Yemenite flatbread. I had never made that before. I watched so many YouTube videos. Everybody makes it differently, but you start getting a sense of what makes it Malawach, And then you kind of, then I would kind of go from there. And I would always try to think about, it was really important in this book. So essential Jewish baking. um, we wanted it to be kind of those, in, those recipes your grandma you know might have made when you were growing up if that was your background. We also wanted it to be comfortable for people newer to um, Jewish baking. Maybe you're not even Jewish. You just love a bagel or you're, you have a friend who's Jewish. You want to cook for them. So I also tried to keep ingredients, something you could buy at the local grocery store um, and really try to keep the recipes approachable. Uh, Even if they were a little more complicated, try to really keep the directions and the ingredients and the processes as approachable as possible.
0: Well, you did a great job on that because it's a really wonderful, well-written cookbook. I really was impressed, uh, you know, with a lot of the recipes and how you made them really accessible for people that might not be familiar with it.
1: And I've gotten some good feedback. In fact, I'll use my niece as an example. Um, she really wanted to make uh, uh, burekas for her uh, husband, who's uh, from Israel, and he was having a yen for him. But she is does not consider herself a baker. Um, really, never makes dough from scratch or whatever. And those that she's made them now um, three or four times. And in fact, last night I got another um, text from them on our little thread um, saying, "Are the." Uh, you know, that they had just made them like for like the fourth time. And I have a friend who's not Jewish, not a baker at all. And she made the, she made the babka. And so I, yeah, I'm feeling really good that I'm connecting uh, with people who are just excited to have a way to learn to bake, whether they're Jewish or not, like to feel like they've got their, they have the tools to get in the kitchen and try it.
0: Now, speaking of babka, are you, uh, are you in on the recent pumpkin spice babka controversy?
1: No, tell me about it, Dean. I did not hear about this. So How did on, I miss it.
0: <laughs> I saw that this morning on Twitter. I guess somebody posted a recipe for pumpkin spice vodka. Not vodka, babka. And um, I guess the internet went berserk and a lot of people are like very much against it. Some people are like, it's just don't worry about it. It's no big deal when everybody's kind of feuding on it right now.
1: So because it's not traditional, you know, um, as I said, I stuck with I stuck with traditional in the book because that was the essence of the book. But, you know, I think um, part of part of um, the beauty of cooking is the creativity. And, you know, you can change you You can change flavors and things and still give a nod to. To the essence of what it is, you know, babka is this enriched dough with with butter and eggs in it um, that's rolled and and has a filling in it, and um, you know, it. I I think you can, you know, I'm not personally offended by things like that at all. I think there's a something about pumpkin spice. People are either big fans or not. It seems yeah. to bring out, you know, seems to bring out the edge in some people. Um, you know. I said on one of my Instagram posts the other day, you know, I asked people, what are they getting excited about for fall? And I said, if it is pumpkin spice, this is a safe place. You can say that. It's okay.
0: Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it does seem to be a big controversy, though. It's funny to me to watch because I don't I don't see why, but people really seem divided on it. I don't know why. Now, no, I saw well, the, I'll
1: have to look it up. I, I,
0: I saw in your bio that you're from the East Coast. How did you come to move out to the Bay Area?
1: So uh, my, my um, parents uh, are both from the East Coast originally, both born in New York. Uh, my mom was one, my dad was an only child, but my mom was one of six kids. And she was sort of the, in a way, the black sheep of the family because she actually left New York, the New York, New Jersey area because of my dad's work. They ended up in Uh, Schenectady, and then we ended up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is western Massachusetts, as people might know, at the heart of the Berkshires, and that's where I was raised because there was this huge GE, um, you know, uh, footprint there. There were various GE uh, businesses, and my dad worked for GE, so we lived in Pittsfield for a long time, but then my dad got promoted to be the head of the field office at Lockheed Missiles in Space, which is in Sunnyvale, California, and um, he took the job, and whoa, you know, uh, we, we left, we were, I mean, everyone else stayed East Coast, we picked up and drove across the country and came out to California, and myself and my three brothers and my parents who are still alive, um, my mom's almost 92, my dad's 94, we all stayed in California and we've been here, so I've been here ever since and um, it's, it's a far cry from uh, the western Massachusetts or Brooklyn where my, you know, a lot of my family was or New Jersey or Florida, um, but we, we made a home here, we love the, you know, we love it out here. Sometimes a little bit, it's getting better. It used to be really hard to find sort of um, the, you know, the Jewish food I grew up with. It's getting a little bit easier, uh, but it used to be really hard, (laughs) but we love it out here.
0: Now, what, um, who, did somebody inspire you to bake um, or did you kind of come to it on your own?
1: No, so I do talk about it in the book. So I, um, uh, my, it was really my grandma. Um, who inspired me to bake. Uh, she was a prolific baker, as my mother still tells me um, almost every time that I see her. Um, but interestingly enough, and this is something I learned when I started writing my blog and it was part of what really pushed me forward to keep documenting recipes and learning to bake and cook better and better and better. My grandmother's prolific baker, six children, none of them baked. Oh. None of them. It skipped an entire generation. And I, I think it was because that, that there were four girls, there were six kids, four girls at that time. It was rare that the men would bake, but not even the women baked. They cooked, they didn't bake. And I think it was because of the time, like late fifties, early sixties, you know, the whole, like, you know, like convenience foods became popular, frozen foods, you know, all those things. And it suddenly wasn't such a great thing to spend time making stuff from scratch in the kitchen. So anyhow, I kind of came to this epiphany that I didn't want it to kind of just disappear. I mean, when I hear my my mom and her sisters when they were still alive talk about what my grandmother did, I, I was like, I, I don't want that to go away. And she did not write any of her recipes down. She did it all just out of feel. So, I kind of wrote down her kala recipe, and I kind of wrote down her humantation recipe, but it really took me a long time to get up the confidence to start figuring out what those recipes really were, and to grow my, um, you know, my my, the number of recipes that I created that would would sort of, you know, carry on the tradition. So really, I didn't want her her. I mean, I didn't want it. I didn't want her knowledge of baking and her prowess to just disappear. So that's, I think, my biggest motivation, especially on the baking side.
0: Was there anything your grandmother cooked that you especially loved?
1: Well, it's really the challah, and I talk about that in the book. There's the Bubby's challah. I mean, she she cooked savory things, but that wasn't really um, that isn't really what we all remember. What I remember was showing up at her tiny apartment in Brooklyn on a Friday night after driving there from Massachusetts and she would have hollow waiting for us on the table. Oh. And so that was really, into, to me that, and, and she also used to come to our house in Pittsfield and in, in the summers when I was much younger and she would bake for us there, she would bake the hamantash and she would take the extra scraps of dough um, from the hamantash and that wasn't enough left to fill and just make little cookies out of it, and it sounds so simple, but it's one of those things you you just remember. It's like yeah. a flavor memory from your childhood. Yeah. Um, so when I kind of figured out her and recipe, and took those little scraps and baked them, and they tasted like what I remembered, um, that you know those me- those flavor memories are so uh, important to us. I think they just absolutely are, yeah. So, those are, I think, the, the challah, her challah and her hamantashen dough really had a big impact. Now, I know she used to bake way more than that when I wasn't alive yet, but those are the recipes that stood out for me.
0: What kind of fillings did she do for the hamantashen?
1: She did pretty traditional prune filling.
0: I love that. You know what oh they God.
1: might be, people might recognize as lekvar. And mm-hmm. so I actually have, there's a prune filling in the book. And I love that um, a lot of people like poppy seed filling. Uh, we also show lots of, and I suggest using all kinds of jams. Um, not only does it make the hamantash and look beautiful but really you can go any direction with the filling. You can go, you know, the Nutella chocolate route um, but the traditional ones are poppy seed and prune. She was kind of a prune baker, a prune filler.
0: I I, I think it's, it drives me nuts because I like prunes and I, and I like using them in baking and people get so weird about them because they have this weird block in their brain about it, but I really like them I don't know why so many people don't really choose to use them more often.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's an underappreciated fruit and flavor. I agree with you.
0: This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Um, Can you tell us some of the methods and techniques that differentiate kosher baking?
1: Yeah, so uh, I don't, I'm going to give a a reveal here. I don't keep a kosher household, uh, but I had to learn about it for the book. um, And I actually had to write a whole sidebar about it and uh, happened to have a cousin who does keep a very, Uh, a very strict kosher household. So I learned a ton. Uh, And so, you know, kosher baking uh, depends on the kind of kosher household you keep. If you keep a kosher household from, you know, a completely kosher, then you're going to be using, you know, the types of, um, you know, which, which uh, um, um, uh, utensils and um, which oven you use are going to make a difference in your kitchen. Like you're not going to put meat um, dishes in the same oven that you might put your dairy dish or your, I mean, dishes, I mean, recipes, something you're making as your dairy. If, But there's other levels of kosher baking. So it's also which ingredients you choose to use. Um, and you can look at the labels of ingredients in the store to find out if they're if they're considered pareve, or if it, which means no dairy, no meat, or if they're considered to be dairy, if they're kosher approved. And then the other level is just what you're serving it with. Like, uh, uh, so uh, you can make eat like a babka, has eggs and dairy in it because it has butter in it. You're not gonna serve it with a meat meal if you're keeping a kosher house. Um, but so so there's, so you might've used kosher approved ingredients, but you can't serve the milk with the meat. So there's kind of different levels and it depends on how, you know, whether, whether you keep a kosher household or you're just trying to serve something at a, at an event that is considered kosher. Um, So there's, so I go through a whole sidebar explaining that I am not an expert on setting up a complete kosher household, but I do give you know a, a brief background on it. I do talk about what you can look for in the ingredients. So for example, uh, in the book, uh, I make a marble loaf cake. Um, and I, I, I do suggest using almond milk in it uh, because I want an olive oil because I wanted it to be something that you could absolutely serve whether you keep a full kosher household or not, because mm-hmm. there's olive oil in it, not butter, and it's almond milk, so it's a non-dairy milk and not a um, a dairy milk. So, um, anyhow, there's there's lots of alternatives in the book, and I try to point out when something is considered kosher or ways you might be able to make it kosher. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, um, it's a kind of multi-level. Um, uh, answer to your question. There's different levels of keeping kosher, I guess, in, in my mind. Um,
0: I was really uh, happy to see you had a recipe for kugel in there because um, it's something that I, I really love. I had some at a potluck once and I was just, I think I, I made a pig of myself. I almost ate it all because I loved it so much. And I really wish more people were aware of it as a, as a um, dish because it's really beautiful. And it is something that I think if more people made it they would really start using it in their repertoire
1: so what kind of kugels um have you eaten like have you eaten a dairy-based kugel or a, yeah. um yeah
0: yeah I mean, yeah it, so it was cottage cheese based
1: uh-huh uh-huh yeah so the recipe in the book uh there's actually two there's a savory kugel uh that's appropriate for passover and then there's the dairy kugel um that uh, that recipe originally came from my friend dana schrager who runs the she has a blog, foodie goes healthy, but she also runs the Jewish cooking and a Jewish holiday cooking group on Facebook. And uh, kugel's an interesting thing because it's it's almost kind of a very peasanty food, you know, casseroleish, but it can be so delicious, so comforting. Um, I actually grew up in a family we didn't put dairy in the kugel. My mother stopped keeping a kosher household, but she grew up in one. And so she learned to make a kugel that had no dairy in it. So you could eat it like with your Friday night Shabbat meal, which would generally have like a chicken or a brisket or some kind of meat main course. Hence, you could not eat dairy with it. Um, So I grew up eating this really simple kugel with egg noodles and raisins and oil and eggs and cinnamon. And, and that was just about it. And the raisins would get kind of crispy on the top and the edges of the the noodles would get crispy. And I just loved it, but it was so basic and simple. Um, And I thought I, you know, people love dairy kugels. uh, So I really wanted to put something in the book that would give them the option for the dairy kugel.
0: What a nice compliment to any meat too, the, the more savory one, like you mentioned, because I really... It's, it is, like I said, such a great dish. And I think that more people should give it a shot. Definitely get your cookbook and give it a shot because it's nice to try both of them because the more desserty one is nice too in its own right.
1: Right. And it's a, love, a lot of people like to serve it when they break the fast after Yom Kippur, which is usually a dairy meal. And you could make a kugel ahead of time. You're not supposed to cook on the day of Yom Kippur. So right. you can make it ahead and then serve it as part of your dairy break the fast meal. And people love that.
0: So um, as a fellow Bay Area resident, um, can you can we talk a little bit about some of your uh, favorite restaurants and places to go to in the Bay Area for food?
1: Well, um, so, uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel like I don't get out much these days. Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. It's a feeling.
1: <laughs> so. Um, and I, I live in the more southern part of the Bay Area, I think some of the, the, the hottest um, probably restaurants are more uh, in the Oakland area um, and San Francisco. So, uh, I, I'm probably not your leading expert but um, I think if somebody were coming to the Bay Area or has would, would be deciding to venture out. I think um, I would definitely look at Oakland and San Francisco, uh, especially Oakland, but there's some exciting stuff happening in the South Bay. There's um, uh, some nice restaurants popping up in the Campbell area, um, down in more in my area. Boy, if you want to eat Vietnamese food, uh, we have just probably, I think we have one of the biggest populations in the whole country and every type of Vietnamese dish I could you know you can possibly think of um and from from what some of my husband's friends who said who are Vietnamese they sometimes think the the version of it here may be even better than what they remembered from you know being in Vietnam although uh the food there is amazing too in any case I think um there's a lot of you know not necessarily like you know the the restaurants being written up in you know uh whatever the fancy you know in and, and, re- and reviewed but there's amazing vietnamese food down here um there's some fun restaurants popping up and have been in the Los Gatos area which is um kind of right near the Santa Cruz Mountains before you drive over there's some um there's some good stuff happening uh like uh uh David so David Kinch who has Monresa and in uh los gatos he opened up a uh pizza place very casual over the hill in aptos um and so uh but if you're asking me where do i go out all the time uh i mean i've been kind of i've been a little hermit like over the last year and a half there's also been there's a uh, there are some a lot more i had mentioned there's a lot more Um, Jewish food and also Israeli food um, that uh, restaurants with Israeli food or, or specific cuisines, Palestinian food um, popping up more so in the Oakland and um, San Francisco area. But there is a place in Sunnyvale to get falafel that many people may not know about called falafel stop. And uh, if you want to eat fantastic falafel and be temporarily transported to Israel that's the place to go just a little hole in the wall in fact little story I went to high school pretty much across the street from where it is it used to be a fast food place that um, everyone at lunch at my high school would go to now it's this place called falafel stop and it's amazing Um, really fantastic basically a hole in the wall highly recommend driving down for it it's terrific
0: I think is right. Re- you could, we could even say that Israeli food is becoming one of the biggest food trends in the Bay Area right now.
1: I I think uh, Israeli food and um, as I say, like specific cuisines from that region. You yeah. know, uh, Lebanese, um, Turkish, um, uh, Palestinian. What's the? I can't think of the name. There's a great restaurant. It's I'm I'm blanking on the name, but anyhow, I think if you're looking. Uh, for for cuisines to eat, I mean, and that's the other thing about the Bay Area. I mean, really, you can find almost anything. I absolutely, I, yeah, right. You know, you could find Russian food, um, Peruvian food. I mean, I, you know, you can just find just about anything. And and hopefully, most of the places have survived. And there's some I've seen I've seen some new things opening up. So let's keep our fingers crossed that you know the restaurant scene continues to flourish
0: yeah it's funny because one of the things i love about the bay area and why i'll never leave is like i live in the what would be considered the boondocks but um i mean i live in the middle of nowhere but i can go five minutes and get sumac and zatar if i want to you know it's easy for me so i love that about here it's so much different than living like in idaho where you have to travel three hours to get it you know
1: right or order it online Yeah. yeah Yeah, Yeah, no, there's, that's another thing. There's some just amazing, I, I'm kind of a geek for grocery stores and especially, you know, culturally specific grocery stores, um, you know, that have Middle Eastern ingredients, Indian ingredients. Um, you, I mean, I found hole in the walls that specialize in like ingredient, you know, that have products that have come from Russia. I mean, I love put me in the middle of a grocery store like that and just let me roam up and down the aisles. And I'm a very, very happy person.
0: I'm exactly the same way. I think it drives my wife nuts because she hates shopping and I love it. So I'll, I'll go. I'm the one that likes to go grocery shopping and she's happy to stay home and let me do it.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the geek. I'm the grocery store geek in our house. Thank
0: you. Um, some of your who, who are some of your favorite, um, cookbook authors and food writers that you're reading that you enjoy reading
1: oh that's really hard to um to narrow down uh i as we alluded to earlier uh i'm obviously a huge fan of yotam otolenghi and also uh sammy tamimi uh i i just uh i love the the story, their storytelling and the ingredients they use and the flavors they create. Um, I've been making uh, Sammy Tamimi for, and Tara Wigley's recipe for something called Shata, which is a Palestinian um, pepper uh, spice sauce thing, condiment, condiment is the word I'm looking for. It's so simple, but it's otherworldly by the time you're done with it it's amazing so uh i'm loving that i love all of their books uh i love a new book that just came out by emily pastor on um mediterranean cooking but in the instant pot uh and i love it and and some air fryer the the recipe flavor profiles are amazing i'm uh, the photography is made amazing by Lay Olson. Uh, so definitely, I would take a look at that. I, of course, love Dori Greenspan. I, I love the way when you read her recipes, you feel like she's in the kitchen with you. Uh, I really admire the way she writes her recipes. It just is I feel like you're together when you read, you know, you're with her when you read her recipes. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I love Nick Sharma's work, um, Season, and then uh, what's his the flavor? What's his latest book, Flavor? I should know this. I I
0: should know it too.
1: Um... Uh, Is it Flavor Quotient? Is it Flavor? I should know this. Anyhow, both of his books, I love the way he takes traditional, Um, He started, you know, really like he'll often use flavor profiles, ingredients, for example, from Indian cuisine. But I see him, you know, adding in his own flair. He just I love the way he creates his flavors and and stretches the boundaries of things. Um, And of course, this photography is absolutely amazing. Uh, uh, I also love someone who's not She's not writing her blog anymore, but Cheryl Sternman Rule. Uh, if you can find, if you find either of her cookbooks, Ripe or Yogurt Culture, and if I don't think it's online anymore, but her blog, um, the Five Second Rule. Her writing, her food writing is phenomenal. She's always, I would always read what she wrote and it would inspire me. Uh, so if you can find any of her, if you find her cookbooks or find any of her writing online, really, really amazing writer. Um, so those are a few, I mean, I could keep going. Uh, I, I, um, and I know people on blogs these days really wanna get straight to the recipes, but there's some amazing, amazing storytelling. Oh, I know somebody else. I would check out Viola Butoni Um, she, uh, doesn't have a blog, um, but her Instagram feed is inspiring. She's, um, focused on Italian ingredients, Italy by ingredient. Uh, she's just, and and check out her videos, just super. And she loves what she does. She's inspired by food and she will inspire you to get in the kitchen and be just as excited about it as she is. So that's another one.
0: You mentioned something that I think about a lot is that when I write recipes, I like to put a lot of info before them. And I usually include like backstories or biography stuff. And I like to read that kind of thing. And I know there's a lot of people on social media that are like, just put the recipe, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, I, I I don't agree. I like to read like where the cook came from and, you know, and find out more about them. I really live for that part of it.
1: Well, and they talk a lot about, um, there's been a lot of discussion on, on all over online and, and, various places about cultural appropriation in, you know, food and recipes. And I think it's important if you don't want to do that, but you're, you know, cooking something that is maybe not your first, you know, your background that you need to spend some time talking about where the dish is from, what inspired you for the recipe, what the ingredients are. I feel like it's important. I mean, people can hit the jump to recipe button for sure, but I, I like to understand that background. I mean, that's something that's, that's really important to me. And I think it, you know, it might influence you going forward from making that recipe to know, you know, to explore more into that particular ingredient or cuisine. So um, I, I, I like the background of it too.
0: Yeah, I think it's with you. I really like that you said that because, I mean, I, I always worry about cultural appropriation when I write a lot of articles about different food, but I always do like to include that I make this for my family. I grew up eating this. It's not something that's alien to my culture. Um, so, well, I, and then,
1: you know, I, I think a lot about what is when you say what's, you know, something's, you know, alien to your culture. Like, think about like a family like mine and so many families in this country who who have kids who are now of, you know, what is their, cult like, what is my right. kids' culture, right? Like, and that's really important to me that I help them know that, but they're very diametrically opposite things, although I do try, not opposite, they're just very different. You know, right. there's, and they don't necessarily naturally cross over, um, but I, I was in an event once for, I'm in the Bay Area Jewish Food Professional Group, and they, we did a Jew Asian event, and um, uh, the woman who runs it, Alex Wall, asked me to be one of the featured chefs, cooks that night, and so I had to come up with a with a dish that was a representation of both my, um, you know, my Jewish side and the uh, Asian influence in my family, the Korean influence. So uh, I did. I came up with something called Jumandu Oh, my God, I like it. (laughs) (laughs) So mandu is a Korean dumpling. And then, but I use like a kreplach filling. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my idea was kind of like that kreplach is this dumpling of the Jews. And then the mandu is the dumpling of the, you know, my husband's Korean and Hawaiian side. So I kind of merged those two things, called it Jew mandu.
0: Do you have any uh, favorite music you like to listen to when you're baking in the kitchen?
1: Uh, Well, yeah, so uh, I've been listening to a lot of Hawaiian music uh, over the last, especially over the last year, um, because it's very relaxing to me. You know, we couldn't travel and all that. I tried to think about what would relax me, like what, when do I feel the most calm? And I always, when I get off a plane and breathe in the air of Hawaii, the tropical air, I ah, you know, it's like, I feel like my blood pressure immediately goes down and I sort of get this feeling of relaxation. So I've been listening to a lot of Hawaiian music. I will be honest. It's not the only thing I listen to, but, um, when you pull up my Spotify now, it's like, you know, at the top, I always have my Hawaiian music, um, list because I listen to it so much. It just has really helped me kind of, you know, take deep breaths and relax through our you know, the pandemic and, and all the work on the book and just, you know, feeling kind of like, woo stressed out a lot. It's very relaxing.
0: Well, Beth, I want to thank you for being on the show. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much, Dean. And uh, I am so glad you asked me to be here and I love chatting with you today.
0: That was my conversation with author Beth Lee. You can check out her website, OMG Yummy and our link to the essential Jewish baking book in the bio tomorrow. We're going to have author Faith Kramer on our podcast as a rebroadcast of uh, her episode where I got to talk to her one-on-one about her book 52 Shabbats. Um, She'll be on tomorrow. And then later in this week, we'll have more authors. Uh, We're going to have on Thursday, we're going to have Kim Kushner of modern table talking about um, kosher food and Jewish cuisine. And then on Friday, We're going to listen to CEO of Boychick Bagels, Emily Winston, talk about her company and making the perfect bagel. So I'm hoping that you're all enjoying this um, wonderful Hanukkah week, and I hope that uh, these episodes are as special to you as they are to me. I hope you have a really wonderful holiday if you celebrate Hanukkah, and have a great week of cooking and sharing with your family. Keep cooking.